Welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by the team of Resolve Asset Management, where evidence inspires confidence. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in the mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everyone in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Mike Philbrick, Adam Butler, Rodrigo Gordillo, and Jason Russell are principals of Resolve Asset Management. Due to industry regulations, they will not discuss any of Resolve's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by the principals are solely their own opinion and do not express the opinion of Resolve Asset Management. This podcast is for information purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For more information, visit investresolve.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another podcast episode with the Resolve crew. And today we're doing a special episode. This is being recorded post-COVID-19 crash and a little bit of the recovery. This is April 17th. And the reason that we decided to record this one is because we're getting a lot of questions as to where do we go from here, right? Where, where's the market going to go from here? What's the economy going to do? And, and more particularly, how do, should we think about portfolio construction and strategy construction moving forward? Right? And this is a very important topic. Everybody wants to know whether they can profit in an outsized way, given the market dynamics. And there's a lot of narratives out there right now that are pulling in every direction. And we've had those discussions internally, and some of them are very convincing, and they often change day to day. Ultimately, the question is, can we really garner any sort of directionality based on these macro narratives? And for this discussion, we brought in the Brain Trust of Resolve. We got uh, Mike Philbrick, Adam Butler. We've also brought in Richard Latterman, who is uh, in, his, in a past life before he became a full-on quant, was a portfolio manager in Brazil that dealt with a lot of these macro narratives to make investment decisions. And anyway, we, what we're going to do is we're going to discuss the narratives. We're also going to try to create a framework by which one could filter those narratives and then also think about portfolio construction and bet sizing in order to see if we can help people navigate the markets moving forward in the coming months and years. So without further ado, I will uh, let you enjoy the podcast. And always, if you have any questions, please do connect with us on Twitter or through our website and, and using email. Enjoy the episode. All right. So we're here with the Brain Trust. And what we're going to talk about is what is on everybody's mind, right? We've been bombarded with questions from clients, colleagues, friends of where are we going to go from here? Where are we going to go from here for, when it comes to the markets? Where are we going to go from here when it comes to the economy? And like everybody else, we've had a bunch of these conversations internally. So we thought we'd create a podcast where we're going to run through the narratives of, that are coming up, whether it's going to be inflation or deflation or growth or whatever narrative is out there, we're probably going to cover it in this podcast. And then we're going to try to create the classic resolve framework around how we can move forward from here. We're going to discuss balance, we're going to discuss bet sizing, we're going to discuss factors and see if those tools allow us to provide some guidance to our listeners to move things forward. And with this podcast, we're going to have an additional slide deck that we'll post up on the show notes so that you guys can follow along whenever we want to discuss a particular chart. So with that said, gentlemen, here we are, one of the most interesting parts of our career, especially when it comes to what's going on in the markets. And there's a bunch of narratives going on right now. I think the predominant narrative that we are hearing because we're surrounded by pessimists is that of a, we haven't seen the lows yet of the markets and we're going to continue to see a deflationary scenario. So love to hear from you, Mike. I think you're the one that's been most vocal about the possibility of continued deflation here. Why don't you tell us about the narrative you're hearing on the deflation side and the continued shock to the economy, global chains and all that fun stuff. Really, it's a function of shocks, modeled risk versus uncertainty, and understanding the difference of those. And then how does that translate into potential asset price movements in your portfolio and how you could balance those off and how you might want to take advantage of certain factors that you could achieve some sort of excess return on. But if we think about the current situation, we have several dynamics at work that are quite what I would call uncertain or unknown. We have unknown unknowns as well. So we have a virus. That virus has a policy response. There's uncertainty in how the virus will respond. There's uncertainty to the policy responses. There's uncertainty. Maybe there's less uncertainty in policy responses because maybe those will be everything that anyone could possibly do. There's the resulting geopolitical uncertainty that comes from 
the lack of certainty we see in the virus and the potential policy responses and the feedback loops that they create. And so those are creating, when we think about aggregate demand and aggregate supply and the shocks that are being created, they cause a contraction in GDP, which is obviously being fought head on and with double barrels from all of the central banks and governments around the world, both monetarily and fiscally. And so there are some things that you can have a framework and understand, i.e. we know aggregate demand has had a shock and it's decreasing, and we know that that supply chains have been disrupted. We also know that there has been a massive stimulus response. How that soup gets cooked together and what it results in is a very, very difficult thing to try and sort of calculate, if you will. I think that's a really good sort of starting point because I think everybody feels, I mean, we have this conversation at our house actually, because my daughter has a stock market competition that she's involved in. It just happens to be this year and and this time, which is an extra layer of interesting conversations at home. But it'd be very easy in this environment to invest based on first order effects. We know there's a larger demand shock than we've seen in the past, certainly in the past decade, probably in the past eight decades since the Great Depression. We've obviously got layoffs and unemployment at at depression levels at the moment. We've got everybody at home. The aggregate demand is going to be down somewhere between five and 10% in the quarter, maybe more. And So it was just the sort of first order effects we're going to invest on the basis of supply and demand and the impact on earnings and revenue and that sort of thing. It would be pretty easy to, I think, forecast where equity market prices were going. I mean, we're highly confident that they'd be going lower. What complicates matters is that there are threshold levels for inflation and for asset prices that the government has, in its great wisdom, decided that it won't tolerate. And so they've stepped in, you've got the ECB and the Fed and other central banks stepping in with the equivalent of sort of whatever it takes policies and have deviated from both precedent and legal precedent in terms of the types of assets that they can buy in order to shore up asset prices. And we just have no idea as investors how far they're willing to go. Will they, the last couple of weeks, they've stepped in and bought corporate bonds. They changed it now to buy high yield bonds. Um, They're going to be buying leveraged loans. And how long is it before they actually step in and buy equities? And so how do you navigate the first order effects against the second order effects? Then you've also got all the complexity about how long we're locked up and how long the demand shock's going to last and all that kind of stuff, which complicates things further. But it's those two opposing dynamics at the moment, I think, that investors are struggling with. I would add one other thing. Again, this is really complex. The liquidity shock from March 9th to sort of March 21st, 24th, the fact that you had just selling of all asset classes, those structural relationships that you relied on between the various sectors and regimes that we all talk about in those inflation and growth dynamics actually broke down. Bonds were selling off as equities were selling off. I think the 10-year went to 30 basis points and then all the way back to 125 basis points. So it's tough to model and it's tough to model what the fiscal intervention is going to be. Some people are, I think, maybe the market is overconfident that all the central banks will do whatever it takes. The second derivative thinking on that is, okay, well, if they have to do whatever it takes down the road in a next fiscal or monetary intervention, what does that mean about what happened? So so I don't know that you could be confident or not confident. You have to observe and you have to adapt and you have a framework of understanding and a framework I think, in which you can interpret the markets and then react to them. And that's what we do. We think very deeply about that. And uh, maybe I'll throw that back to the group. Sure. I mean, we're still talking about the different narratives that are emerging. These two dynamics that we were discussing was stimulus that has been unprecedented going to be enough to continue this growth. And this is just a technical correction like it was in 1987. And then everybody's going to go back to work in the next couple of months. The capacity is going to get pretty tight again, and we're going to get a V recovery. Maybe it's a U recovery because we have this lull of being in isolation. But there's the other dynamic that is a tough one to really figure out, and that's an inflation dynamic. We've clearly seen a deflationary period here. And the question is, is this stimulus enough to get us out of deflation? 
But the other question is, is it too much? Where once we go back to full capacity, big gold has been out of the narrative forever, but now it's a big part of the discussion because it's like 2008. Do you remember back then? You remember how everybody, especially from Canada, everybody in Canada was like, are you kidding me? Gold's going to go through the roof, the amount of money being printed, the system is corrupt, yields and bonds are never going to go below two. I think they were right until 2012. Yeah, fair enough. Right, because it, right, it did but, go up a lot. It went up a lot, but you, you had all these preferreds that reset every five years for the yield, knowing that it was going to be so much higher, but in fact, it was lower. So all these preferreds ended up getting cut in half. There's a lot of strong beliefs out there right now, but also on the inflationary side. Like you said, timing is, a, is interesting. When did it happen? When were they right? When were they wrong? And as we've had these discussions in, in the office, it's been very difficult to get a clear view as to where it's likely to go. And well, has anybody been able to articulate a credible inflationary trajectory or this, the inputs or the dynamics that would create an inflationary scenario? Richard is probably uh, one of the guys that has read most up on this stuff and had some views, right? Before we jump into the narratives, I just want to set the stage for the narratives and understand that there's narrative, then there's the common acceptance of the narrative. So once the narrative is broadly accepted, it's no longer informative and you don't know when it's broadly accepted. So when is the narrative actually reflective of the current asset prices? And you need the narrative that you believe if you're going to garner some excess return has to be ahead of the current narrative, but not too far ahead. It has to be the exact right amount ahead. But there is no common narrative is I think the conclusion that we're getting to, but there, it also depends on what bias we're feeding. So Richard has an inflationary bias as being a, a South American, Brazilian, I certainly do. And a Canadian, my God, the triple whammy. So yeah, walk us through the, uh, the inflation narrative that you've been hearing. Yeah, I think to Mike's point is the idea that inflation has been dead for the last 30 years. That has been the overarching narrative. Inflation is dead. And so the market has become completely numb to this risk. And people aren't really understanding how this can come about. So there's no question that in the first moment, this, this first stage of this crisis is definitely deflationary. There's no doubt about that. There's a demand shock. Everybody is in some form of house arrest. No one can really move. Demand has gone down precipitously. What's going to happen next is the real question. And I think the US dollar is one of the big drivers here. Because if we expect the Fed, which is already committed to $4 trillion, and the Treasury another $2.5 trillion almost, if that continues, and we don't know how deep they'll go with the stimulus, at what point does this become inflationary? And we've become numb to this because in 2008, there was a lot of money printing and no inflation came about. And so we've now discounted that as that's never going to happen. We've done it in the past. We can do it again. Now that's why we've had this resurgence of these ideas, helicopter money, modern monetary theory. This is all based on this idea that we can print our way out of any problem. And so this is the narrative that has occupied the site, guys. And forget inflation. It's never going to happen. I think the risk is that we've all discounted that as never going to happen. And that's when things tend to go awry. It's when you've said this is impossible. And that's become a blind spot to markets. Let me help with that narrative a little bit in that you have the supply shock and the global supply chain and the nationalization of the production of all kinds of things now that's being discussed. So if you reverse globalization, and to some degree, the, the labor markets of the world have equalized. But if you reverse that, you do set the stage for higher prices for products. You set the stage for higher prices for products, right? But what's also set the stage here, so we didn't talk about like this continued on the inflation front, is you have everybody nationalizing product for national security reasons. Everything's going to go up in terms of price or a wide variety of products are going to go up. We're also going to see, I think there's a large probability of the big winners, these big conglomerates that used to, that were on one way trajectory, getting bigger and bigger, gobbling up more and more of those medium-sized companies and having more and more monopolistic rents. This has just supersized that, right? What's happened now is that the government opened up the coffers to give help to everybody. And those that are closest to the government are the ones that are going to get the biggest handouts. 
And those biggest handouts are going to create income growth as well. There's going to be, I think, if we get out of this, this is a bit of my bias, there's going to be a lot of incomes going up along with some of the price inflation. There's going to be inflationary. Why are incomes going up? Because you're going to have a lot of hirings coming from, you're going to have a stronger monopolistic, whether it's Amazon, Apple, all these big players and restaurant chains, developers, they're going to have excess money to spend and they're going to hire more and more of these. Is there any precedent for that? I don't think there's ever been a precedent of oligopolistic tendencies leading to higher employment demand. You monopolize, you can raise prices and that gets distributed to executives and shareholders, but it doesn't trickle down to more labor. Well, you're growing that business. You're adding layers to it. It's not a single business. It's not hydro. But the incentive is to grow revenues, grow the top line by raising prices. It's not necessarily by growing the bottom line, by growing revenues, by increasing demand and and growing the bottom line through innovation. I can definitely see a path to inflation through M&A, where the larger players gobble up the smaller players. We get more oligopolistic sectors, and therefore they now have better pricing power and they can raise prices. So that's an interesting position. I do think that the import question is overstated because the weight of imported goods in the average Western consumption basket is relatively small. If you think about where we spend our money, it's on food, it's on transportation, it's on rent, it's on healthcare. Let me bring that back to the US dollar because this idea that we can print our way out of the problem and the Fed is printing at a much higher rate than the ECB and the BOJ. And at one point, we got a question, when does the market catch up to that and zero into the credit worthiness of the US dollar? So, okay, what's your option? Is it Bitcoin? Like this is- It's gold. This is the beggar that I never policy, right? That is why gold has become- Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay, so I can get behind, I can get behind gold doing better than the U dollar. But if we're talking about currencies, it's U dollar first and everything else. So like who would buy the Brazilian real? Who would prefer? Absolutely. That's why they've sold off. But the US dollar is now experiencing what some might call a blow off top or a melt up face. It's become very strong. But in 08 and 09, after the money printing really began full steam, you saw the dollar weaken against most of these currencies. And then you saw commodities, commodity prices rise. And that has to do with the fact that Practically every commodity on the planet is quoted in U.S. dollars. So a weaker U.S. dollar begets stronger commodity prices. And that is how the inflationary side of things can also creep in because, as Adam rightly pointed out, food is a big chunk of our consumption of goods. And the U.S. dollar becoming weaker by default because, again, we're also coming into a moment in time there's going to be less growth to go around. And it's going to be the beggar thy neighbor dynamic that we witnessed back in 08 and 09, where countries were looking to competitively devalue their currencies to export their way out of the crisis. So I think this is another dynamic that can help this inflationary story. I think it's important to... So lots of neat stories and lots of good arguments as to why one way will work out or another. I would argue that in that consumer basket, that everything is globalized. We import tons from China, et cetera. But all of a sudden, the oil price has been eviscerated. So the way in which we transport things would be a factor that attenuates that. And it's so interesting. And we're having this discussion at this moment in time, assuming things continue in some way. But this is very, as my partner Adam likes to say, it's very path dependent. So one of the uncertainties is what's the virus going to do? In a scenario where the virus rears its ugly head again in the fall and winter, and we need to do another shutdown. And then there's another 10% charge to GDP that has to be nationalized through the debt. Then it becomes another very difficult situation. Then you start to get the stagflation, the lack of growth. Yeah. Well, no amount of financial money printing is going to help the real economy, right? Oh, there's third order, fourth or fourth order. Effects morphed too. into like the, the Spanish flu or it morphed into a deadly virus for people in their 20s and 30s. Are we going to say everybody wear a mask and get back to work? It's not going to happen. Everybody's going to stay at home and it's going to be even worse than it is today. Or there's going to be a breakdown in social cohesion. I know in our home, 
people are starting to get pretty frisky, want to get out in the world and go back their daily lives. And they're starting to rebel. I'm starting to see across the Twitterverse and social media, there is a groundswell of basic need to get out and go about their daily lives. And there's good research, the affect theory of decision making, we are going to feel strongly, and then we are going to act in a way that alleviates these strong feelings. And then we are going to do whatever it takes to defend those actions. So what happens when we have a breakdown in social cohesion? Right now, it's astonishing. I know where I live and, and where you guys live, everybody is obeying this stay-at-home order. I wonder how long that's going to last. I'm already being asked. And let's assume that they let us out and then we've got order us back in in the fall for another six weeks. How is that compliance going to be then? These are the path dependencies that start to get really complicated. The social unrest can be augmented by the shortages of basic supplies that you're starting to witness. Everybody was joking around about the lack of toilet paper, people were hoarding toilet paper. There's a lack of farmers, workers to harvest the crops that we need in order to have food. And if there's less food, what happens to food prices? That's exactly right. And now there's going to be a lot more dollars circulating in the economy because you have this fiscal bazooka being deployed. And what happens when you have that many more dollars, an order of magnitude more, chasing the same loaf of bread? What happens then? Well, I may be going out on a limb here, but people can only eat so many loaves of bread. And I want to just change the narrative totally. The virus is cured. We have a, a vaccination. We have a vaccination. And it fades away into the distant memory of humanity within six weeks. Okay. For sure. Go. <laughs> I've, so I've been reading our Slack role. This conversation evolved from the fact that we all took very strong stance at one point or another on every one of these narratives. And I've been looking at our Slack role. You guys have all been all over the place. Mike, maybe you've been a bit more bearish than everybody else. That's just in your personality. But depending on the news that's coming out on any given day, any given hour, we were all swayed one way or the other. Now, to be clear, systematic, this doesn't inform what we do. And we're going to talk about how we can deal with it systematically. But the point is that there's a lot of noise out there. There's a lot of volatility and in information. And we've proven the point here. We've all made some compelling cases on what could happen. We've talked about how the inflationary pulse may not be enough from a financial perspective to offset a second and third round of this coronavirus. It might be completely deflationary. We've talked about the fact that it's enough. And in fact, this is going to go away in a week. It's a technical bounce. And this is going to be back to normal in about six weeks. We've talked about the fact that it's too much money in the system. We're going to go somewhat to normality and inflation is going to rear its ugly head or we're not going to go to normality. It's going to be stagflation. So let's talk about the framework that we can use that is sound and solid in order to deal with these levels of uncertainty. So we, by the way, this has all been covered in one of our podcast channels. That's so a 12 Days of Investment Wisdom podcast. We're going to kind of just briefly touch upon a lot of these topics. But if you want to get deeper as we talk about it, we'll give you the podcast episodes you can review more in depth. But why don't you walk us through this economic dynamic, this inflation growth dynamic, so that we can start with some sort of framework to handle the coronavirus scenario. It goes back to, I think we've established, and that was really the purpose of the last 20 minutes of discussion, was to establish the fact that what we are facing is an extreme level of uncertainty, probably an order of magnitude more uncertain than anybody had, or that most people had ever considered that we were going to face as investors. And so how do you face down uncertainty and move forward? Because we've got savings, we've got investments, we've got financial objectives. We need to still meet those. How do we navigate a highly uncertain climate? And we go back to Bernstein quote, which I think we use all the time. And it has special meeting here where Bernstein said, in general, survival is the road to riches. Let me say that again. Survival is the only road to riches. That's what diversification is for. It's an explicit recognition of ignorance. And I don't know about you guys, but as we've gone through this in our Slack channels, as we've had private conversations, as we've had this conversation, I haven't gotten any more certain about what the future holds. I've gotten less certain. And in the face of 
high uncertainty, the first step you want to take is to reevaluate how you think about diversification. And so we like to think about diversification at a foundational level as dividing potential outcomes into different surprises on the dimensions of inflation or surprises on the dimension of growth. So you could have surprisingly high inflation combined with surprisingly high growth, surprisingly high inflation combined with surprisingly low growth or negative growth, surprisingly low inflation combined with high growth, surprisingly low inflation combined with surprisingly low growth. So if you divide the potential scenarios that might unfold into these different regimes, now you've got sort of inflationary growth, disinflationary growth, deflationary bust, and stagflation. And so the way we think about it is we don't know what's going to happen, but what we want is to have at our fingertips a universe of asset classes so that members of that universe of asset class are able, are fundamentally designed to thrive in each of those different economic environments. For example, what thrives in an inflationary growth environment? Things like emerging market equities, international real estate, inflation protected bonds, emerging bond spreads, that sort of thing. Think about the period from 2000 to mid 2008. Big push in emerging markets, international equities outperform US equities, commodities go to the moon, that sort of real estate, obviously. Disinflationary growth. Think about the 1990s. You've got major tech leadership, declining inflation, reasonably good for bonds. Domestic equities are designed to do very, very well. Stagflation. Think about the 1970s. You've got low economic growth, poor environment for equities. You've got high inflation, which means poor environment for bonds. But it's also high inflation was very, very good for things like gold and commodities, which produce double-digit returns basically each year over that decade. And then you've got times like deflationary busts, like we experienced in 2008, like the Great Depression, and potentially like what we're facing going forward here. Not making a guess, but just possible. We're also putting up this chart of just some examples of these secular trends, these secular inflationary boom periods. And you'll see here that Emerging markets at 31%, commodities 21%, gold 19%, the rest were losers. During a period of disinflationary boom, which is 1972 to 1987, so lower inflationary shocks, higher growth, 1982, yes. You have developed equities and bonds doing the best, having the best returns. Deflationary bust, the only winners, as we've seen in 08, is treasuries. In 08 to 09, treasuries are up 14%, gold is up 8%. In 1972 to 1980, Gold was a whopping 41% annualized return during that period. And commodities, number, uh, number two. So we've seen these dynamics at play. And to be clear, those are the secular trends that last years. But these dynamics also occur in smaller cycles. They happen every year. Um, another chart that we like to show is this yearly ranking of asset classes from best to worst. And you can see here that any given year, depending on the the microinflation and growth dynamics, there's going to be big winners and big losers. There is a secular trend, but in any given year, in that 10-year trend, you might see deferring outcomes. Well, what I think might be really surprising to those who are maybe less familiar with the risk parity literature especially, is that in fact, across every different type of cycle, there are asset classes that you can be long that deliver spectacular returns. So you don't even actually need to be short in order to make money in, even in environments that are particularly painful for stocks and bonds. Druckenmiller, Miller, who everybody believes to be a man who can thrive or has thrived in a lot of economic shocks, was recently asked how he knew when to short equities. And he said, I've never made my money in equities. I've made all of my money in bonds, sovereign bonds during those periods, sovereign bonds and euro dollars. So there's, you don't have to go short in day, indeed. In fact, a lot of the PL for CTAs back in 2008 and today is coming from treasuries. It's not coming from shorting. So it's important to note that these are structurally different asset classes that are about, they're going to react predictably in certain environments. The problem is to try to predict what environment we're going to be in. That's the tough part. So if we can predict that treasuries and gold are likely to react well in periods like this, the only thing that's left for us now is to predict when it's going to happen. And I think. The 
overarching takeaway from this conversation. And I hope people in general who are listening to this have internalized this view. But the reality is we can't really forecast. There's no amount of really good global or macro information or an ensemble of macroeconomic indicators that are going to really give you high confidence over horizons that are going to allow you to sort of set it and forget it over a few years. I think you need to be dynamic, both dynamic in how you're measuring correlations and volatility at the very least in order to maintain appropriate diversification across this truly diverse universe of global asset classes. And then you need to layer on systematic proven edges that are able to tilt the portfolio towards certain markets and away from other markets in a dynamic and systematic way based on established dynamics and how markets work. Those edges are really what we lean into as we seek to manage client portfolios in this type of period of profound uncertainty. I think one of the conclusions that one might arrive after hearing this uncertainty environment is that passive buy and hold portfolios are going to have a very tough time over the next foreseeable, call it five to 10 years. So I think this is where Adam was getting at. If you're talking about holding some of these asset classes that have done so well in the last 10 years and just holding them passively, I think it's going to be a shock to a lot of investors that are relying on these portfolios as to what this new reality, this paradigm shift that we might be witnessing. Yes, I think that's true. But I think the passive that we're talking about is that traditional 60-40, home country buys 60-40 portfolio. It's going to be a lot more difficult. You're getting, you're basically in two asset classes for the most part. And one asset class is 60% equities, dominates the risk of the portfolio. And so you're kind of dependent on one regime, which is growth. You're hoping for growth. You're hoping that the Fed solves this. And what we're trying to highlight here with putting together this idea that we don't know with the Bernstein diversification idea is that that's not going to cut it. You're going to need to create balance. You're going to need to have some assets that will thrive if it's inflation. You're going to need to have some assets that will thrive if it's deflation. You need to have some asset class that will thrive if it's growth. And you need to put them together in such a way that is thoughtful. First step would be to just acknowledge that maybe having some gold and commodities is the right thing to do. This is the Harry Brown portfolio, the permanent portfolio that everybody's been talking about. That portfolio hasn't done poorly. You got your gold in there, you got commodities, you got your bonds, you got your equities. The next step might be what we've always discussed is saying, is it appropriate to just do equal weight across these asset classes? In dollar terms, no, it's probably better to have equal risk contribution to make sure that the maniacs aren't taking over the asylum. Equities have significantly higher volatility than bonds. I would add one more point in that in that passive posse, I'll call them, I don't think that they understand, maybe they do, but I'm not sure that it's understood that three times the S&P has had negative equity risk premium for more than 13 years at a time. So calculate that into a financial plan. And we've had conversely a very high equity risk premium for the last decade or so, especially in US markets. Maybe it continues, but one has to actually present that question to oneself and say, okay, well, there has been three times, more than 13 years, that equity risk premium has been negative. It's not a bond. It doesn't occur every year like clockwork. And I think that's what the last sort of 10 to 12 years has maybe, I'm not going to say trick, but there's behavioral biases at work here. There's a recency bias, which feeds into an overconfidence bias which also plays into the endowment effect because I own these things. They've been so good to me and I don't want to part with them. And so there's almost a tidal wave of behavioral bias here that's working against the average investor as well to skew portfolios in exactly the wrong direction as we go into what Richard puts as a regime shift, potentially. Well, this is what nobody wants to hear that. Everybody wants to hear that it's business as usual, or some people want to hear that they have gone 100% cash and that they should continue to be in cash and the market's going to go down aggressively from here. The first takeaway here is, look, there's a reason why preparation is key here. And preparation is making sure at the very least you have exposure to a broad array of asset classes that can deal with a broad array of outcomes, whatever they may be. So our first case here, first people are asking, where do we go from here? What should I do? At the very least, create balance in your portfolio. Get away from your biases. Don't listen to the narrative and have confirmation bias by only searching the thing 
who else believes that a deflation is in, in store for us for the next six months, just say, I don't know, and balance your portfolio. That's a good starting spot, okay? And then the question is, okay, how can we diversify further? We've always talked about diversification isn't just asset class diversification, although it's done pretty well. I mean, look at the risk parity strategies that for some reason have gotten a really bad name. That idea of preparation, of not predicting a lot of the future, but just simply having all these asset classes in balance, this year was a non-event for risk parity for the most part. There's one or two blowouts. There's one bad week. There's one bad, maybe week, maybe a couple of days. Stemming from a liquidity crisis. Yeah. Liquidation face up the sell-off. Yeah. But for the most part, it did exactly what one would expect it to do. It didn't suffer much in February. Didn't suffer a lot for the most part in March. It was a fully expected drawdown. That's the power of preparation from an asset allocation perspective. And the question is, should I sell my risk parity now and go full hog on equities? And what we're trying to say is like, no, that still is the right thing to do. If you don't want to go further into the diversification spectrum we're going to talk about, that's a good spot. So now let's talk about further diversification. The global risk parity strategy is a really good, naive prior. In other words, if you truly don't know where, what sort of macroeconomic regime you're going into, the global risk parity portfolio leaves you maximally prepared for that without having to take any active risk. The challenge here, I think... Sorry, Adam, I don't know if you're going to talk about the challenge. It's a challenge on on what everybody's going to say, I think, which is risk parity is not going to make any money if we start investing in it now because bonds are, bond yields are so low. Well, yeah. I mean, I think you've got a really good webinar, which we would recommend you go look for. We'll probably post it in the show notes that talks about 90 years of risk parity. And I think there's some extraordinary comfort for people who go through that webinar with you. There's obviously been periods where bonds have had negative yields and massive drawdowns in real terms for 40 plus years, and yet the risk parity portfolio still managed to deliver. And so I think that may come as a surprise to many investors. But I mean, just keeping it really simple, I mean, Elroy Dimson, who publishes the Credit Suisse yearbook every year, has orchestrated one of the greatest international data collection efforts for financial data. He's got, I think, data back over a century for over 25 global stock and bond markets. And he used all of this data to come up with a forecast of what 60, 40 investors might expect over the long term from here. And his estimate is that US 60, 40 investors should expect real return of about 2% a year for here. And I think a lot of people are going to find that surprising and a little disturbing because I think, how can you reach your financial objectives when your required return is three and a half, four and a half, five and a half percent a year, and the forecast is for two and a half or two percent real. You need to do something to close that gap. I mean, one of the things you can do is make changes to your lifestyle. You can decide that you're going to save more and live a bit of a, a more prudent lifestyle. You can decide you're going to delay retirement. The number of years that you're actually in retirement versus working is a big determinant of how much you need to save and therefore your required return. But for people who, for whom those different paths are less attractive, you need to start thinking outside the box. And that's what we started doing about a decade ago, sort of looking at the potential returns even from a decade ago, maybe not reliable in order to provide sustainable financial objectives or retirement outcomes. How can we further diversify and that's when we started looking for systematic edges. So one of the ones that I think people are most familiar with might be trend, for example. So global trend following, typically sort of trend CTAs have provided very strong both returns. There's AQRs that got some great papers that go back over a century on returns to diversified trend strategies. Certainly trend has had a, a challenging decade, but I don't think there's a reason to believe that the trend premium and the reasons why the trend premium exists have completely gone away. There are some other factors that we would certainly advocate for, but one of the overarching things that I think we should touch on first is why we focus on multi-asset type of systematic edges instead of focusing on the typical kind of security-related factors like the value premium the momentum premium, et cetera. So I don't know if somebody wants to give me a break and dig into some of that stuff. 
Probably not. You guys don't want to talk about it. <laughs> well, Mike, I can, I can talk about it, but I think this is the idea of uh, Samuelson's dictum that markets are micro-efficient and macro-inefficient. There's a, a wide variety of structural barriers to arbitrage that exist in the asset allocation space, what we've always chosen to be our playground, that do not exist in the equity selection space. When you think about the vast swaths of money that spend most of their time trying to do well at is trying to pick securities better. In a systematic world, we've called that factor investing. And so when you look at a pension plan, yes, their strategic asset allocation is siloed, right? You have your equities, your bonds, your credit, and so on. But within those silos, where all the money is, they're trying to, at this point, trying to bring it in-house. They're trying to extract all of the global macro factors. They're trying to beat their benchmark and they're trying to be active and they're not even hiring external managers anymore that may or may not be doing that. They're all doing it in-house. More and more Canadian pension plans specifically that we've been talking to are firing everybody and doing that. So the computational brain power that's going into picking better stocks has always been high. It's now gotten significantly higher and it's easy for them to do it. They can implement it across the silos. Whenever you talk about asset allocation factors so global macro factors, this is still not fully accepted in the, in the pension plan space. And because of the strategic asset allocation, you can't simply grab a big pension plan and say, hey, I'm going to allocate wildly to these strategic sleeves when I feel like it based on these global macro factors. You can't grab this strategic allocation, mix it. You talk about the actuaries, Mike, all the time yeah. and what the impact of that is. I'll connect a couple of dots here too, because I think, Adam, you mentioned the individual investor, but there's also the pension plan investor who does not have the ability to decide that, I guess they could cut benefits, but that's going to be a, a highly contentious issue. And then when you go to your board to approve what your expected returns are in the future, they're going to look at, they're going to take your pie and they're going to look at how much you have in each asset class and where you're going to harvest those returns. And they're going to have an estimate about what the future returns are going to be when they calculate all these things. And in doing so, they prevent themselves from having a lot of a mandate flexibility. Often their size as well prevents them from taking advantage of any portfolio agility. And I think those are a couple of things, a couple of items where investors can take advantage of the inability for large pools of assets to arb away those types of opportunities. I think we've got lots of pieces on that stock selection versus asset allocation and and things along those natures. But I think that that's your point is extremely valid. You're going to have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable with going into areas in which you may have less experience or, well, either way, you're comfortable with being uncomfortable. If you're an allocator, then you can cut benefits or you can increase your expected returns. How are you going to do that? If you're an individual investor, you have the same choice. Both are going to be uncomfortable. You get to choose. Yeah. But it's no shock to us because we've been talking about this since we met. It's no shock to us that the risk premium for equity factors has really not been there. Is there alpha anymore? Possibly, maybe a little bit, but whatever we were back testing is certainly not expected going forward. We haven't seen it since the papers came out. We had our interview with Chris Schindler from Teachers, where he was applying this stuff before it was popular. And when it became popular, he saw a hundredfold AUM go into those strategies and immediately saw his sharp ratio go from one point, I don't know, something, I can't remember what it's like 1.2, 1.5 to like 0.6 and getting worse. It's a really good point actually, because I think many people, there've been some papers published that purport to demonstrate that in fact, the flows to factor strategies are balanced out by flows to anti-factor strategies. So you've got flows into value, systematic value but you've got an equal amount of flows to systematic growth or mutual funds that implement a growth strategy, even if it's not sort of classically labeled systematic growth. And therefore, you shouldn't observe any sort of crowding effect in actual factor strategies. But what can't be easily captured is the extent to which a lot of these very large pools of capital, the sovereign wealth funds, the major pension plans have taken these strategies in-house and are running systematic long-short value, systematic long-short momentum, systematic long-short betting against beta and quality and all of these well-known factor strategies in-house, you can't measure that by looking at, at mutual fund flows, but you can potentially infer it from the performance that we've seen from the strategies when they've been deployed live. I mean, sadly, if you look at a lot of these kind of multi-alternative funds that lean heavily on 
market neutral equity factor trading, these have had a very, very difficult time. And that difficult time seems to be accelerating to the downside. And if you look at the AUM and some of these public strategies are certainly seeing decline. So we may see a renaissance in some of these factors. You know, these things typically ebb and flow. As people start abandoning them. Yeah. The reality is if a strategy consistently does well inverted, eventually that inverse becomes a systematic premium. So it can't go down forever. It needs to eventually flatline as a sort of equilibrium. But I think the cat's out of the bag. Maybe the emperor's clothes are, maybe there are some clothes, but they're not what we thought. So people need to sort of rethink. Yeah. I wanted to tie this back to what we were talking about back to the big pools of money, specifically the pension plans and to the capital market assumptions that you mentioned from Elroy Dimson. So a lot of these pension plans have yet to update their assumptions on how much they're going to get out of their equity positions specifically. So a lot of them are still using circa 7% expected yearly returns from equities. Do you think that that's reasonable? But don't forget the bond side. Precisely. We know what the bond side is. I, I've heard and watched people say, oh, I'm updating my capital market assumptions now because we've had a 30% reduction in equities. Yeah. Well, what about your bond side? Because you need to reduce your assumptions when you have a 30 basis point tenure on a significant portion of your portfolio. And people are calling it bottom without even knowing how deep this goes. I mean, we're all having these conversations. People are starting to some of them pile back into equities. I've had conversations with advisors and allocators thinking back into equities. We're still in lockdown. We don't know if there's a second wave coming on. How can we be sure that this is the market bottom or that we've already seen the market bottom and that we're now off 30% off those lows? So, And look, we're talking about what do we do from here? The first thing we talked about is being balanced across these asset classes. And as we've addressed, the expectations are low. So let's go active. Well, we go to style premium factors in the equity side. And what we're kind of concluding is those are low as well. And so again, trying to provide some guidance here where we go to from here is, okay, what is out there that can increase that expected return that is sustainable alpha that we can count on? And this is where we get to the macro inefficient area. So all these factors that we've addressed also play very nicely on the macro space. And the question that's asked of us all the time is, okay, which are they and which one should I focus on in this next phase? Clearly, and of course, those in the deflation camp think, I just, I want to go a whole hog on trend. Those on the inflationary side, they want to do things like mean reversion and carry and a wide variety of different group macro factors. They're really non-correlated to each other. I think they're counterintuitive as well. They're counterintuitive, non-correlated, and they've been working for the last, unlike a lot of equity sell premiums, they've been working really well. And so the question we need to answer now for the audience is what global macro asset classes, global macro factors we should emphasize going forward. Anybody have any thoughts on that? Well, yeah, I speculated on that and was entirely wrong. <laughs> Isn't no that crazy? <laughs> well, yeah. So we had an internal discussion. It was sort of a spontaneous debate and we hadn't really, it was sort of in the depths of the crisis and, and we didn't have data at our hands. And so there was some assumptions made about which of the multi-asset factor sleeves were likely to provide the best ballast during equity meltdowns. There were side bets going on. Yeah. I mean, it was pretty widely held that trend was by far the best protection against a big equity market crisis. And actually, when we went back and looked at the data, it was really neat to see that when you look across a variety of multi-asset factors, talking trend and carry and mean reversion and skewness and seasonality, these types of things, that it's kind of counterintuitive. I mean, for example, I think a lot of people have the impression that a global carry strategy is highly pro-cyclical. And that's because typically the literature, first of all, typically deals with currency carry, which is in fact pro-cyclical, and because the traditionally carry strategies have implemented carry on currencies and that it has exhibited this pro-cyclical character. But when you diversify a carry strategy across 50 or 75 global markets, including equities and bonds and commodities and currencies, what you find is that in a predominance of equity market crashes, carry does really well as a counter, as a buffer. 
certainly does just as well as trend, as often as trend. And then there are other factors that do well in different equity market crashes. And so really you can't tell which of these multi-asset factors are going to act as the best diversifier. For those of you listening, we're posting that slide right now. And we go through a bunch of recessions and bear markets, I think like seven of them. There is no pattern. What's interesting is, again, we go back to this idea of, okay, certainly we want to be thoughtful about our prediction and we're using global factors in order to do that. But what do we allocate to of these factors? Well, it turns out it's really tough to tell. The dynamics of each bear market have been different, faster, slower, affected different markets. We're not just talking about equity markets here. We're talking about diversified global macro factors that include a wide variety of futures contracts, commodities, real estate, equities, and bonds. And so it's not a surprise after the fact, right? After the debate that we all knew was for certain that carry was going to be bad and, and trend was going to be good, that it's all over the place every single time. And so the conclusion we came to was, all right, good thing that we're an ensemble approach that uses these in equal weight because we just don't know. And so again, that was the recent crash. But what happens from here, you don't really know which one's going to perform best. Yeah, I think we can sort of historically maybe trend has been slightly less reliable. If we move into a recovery period, then trend is maybe a little less reliable than some of the other factors, but not so unreliable that you want to actually take action against it. The reality is, as Rodrigo said, all of these are equally likely to deliver good returns and good diversification in whatever economic environment we move into. And so you want to have access to all of them and you want to effectively diversify. Back to the Bernstein quote, but now on the macro side, on the uh, macro factor side. Not to mention the fact that we've yet to see the end of this current new market dynamic. I mean, we wrote a piece recently on this called Anatomy of a Bear Market. And we're, what, seven, eight weeks into this? The typical bear market lasts a couple of years. The last bear market lasted about 27 months. We've just witnessed a very aggressive equity rally. And we know that bear market rallies are some of the most aggressive out there. And a lot of people have thrown in the towel of being short and they're like, okay, this is over, let's go back. And, and this is still very early innings. It's a bull market in gold and bonds. <laughs> <laughs> right. That is true. You know, one thing we haven't talked about is the fact that notwithstanding bear market rally, is it healthy or normal for markets to be going up by three to 5% a day, even up 5% a day? Is that the sign of a healthy market? My quote, uh, the one that I sent you guys, bear markets, yo. The S&P 500 just posted the most daily swings of 3% or greater in more than a decade, even as the stock market hit a five-week high. The S&P also booked its 38th session of gain of at least 1% this year on Tuesday, surpassing last year's total. So look, all of this is- Those are bear market characteristics. But what does it also highlight, which is the next point of this? It highlights that we just talked about a little bit of prediction here with our global macro factors. And over time, these have some alpha. They have enough alpha to be differentiated and add those excess returns that we think will have those excess returns in the future. The question is, is that premium really strong right now? Should we just count on just putting all our bets, big, bold bets on all of our factors and all of our asset classes right away? Well, I think, let me reframe that because I think that may not come across the way we want. But what we're observing when the market moves up and down three to 5% a day is very high volatility. And volatility is a really good proxy for uncertainty. And I don't mean it in sort of that nighty and uncertainty type context, but uncertainty in the terms of there's a very wide dispersion of views among market participants. Obviously, people are, if prices can swing three to 5% in a day, then there are participants that think markets are, should be much lower and participants that think markets should be much higher. And those are battling it out and in a very volatile way. There's high dispersion of views, high uncertainty. The question is, when volatility is high, should we be betting the same amount? So if volatility is 40, 40% annualized at daily scale, should we have the same amount of leverage on or the same amount of portfolio exposure? as we have on when portfolios are moving by 0.5 to 1% a day? Well, if so, we have to make the implicit assumption that the expected returns are commensurately much higher 
when the portfolio is having these extremely large daily swings in order to have the same level of exposure and expect the same long-term portfolio outcomes. So if that's not rational, unless we've got a really good reason to think that the expected return on our edges is higher when volatility is high, we don't have that. There's nothing in the empirical data to suggest that. Then maybe we should scale back our exposure so that we're maintaining a normal bet size against the fact that we think that our edges have the same power today when markets are volatile as they did before when markets are not volatile. And therefore, we just want our bets to be the same. Can I take a poke at rephrasing that? Yes, please. I think you've summarized it beautifully, but I want to just bring it and maybe make it a touch more succinct in that if you, so passive portfolios maintain their exposure in the face of risk. So you hold your asset classes steady and you let risk run you over to some degree, or you can manage those exposures and and mitigate the risk a bit. But by not de-risking, by holding those exposures, it implies extraordinary bullishness. It implies that you are very, very confident. Think of the sharp ratio of the excess return over the deviation. And it just implies that you're expecting a much, much higher return. I'm not sure that in a logical sense that that is consistent. Well, yeah. I mean, look, you have- Maybe I didn't do a good job of no, summarizing. No, no. You have, you have a, <laughs> the mosaic have a good, of all of it, I think, will come, will come together. We'll get there. I mean, you had the pricing model uncertainty hypothesis. The more volatile something is, the lower the price discovery. And what's interesting is the narrative. Like you said, Mike, in traditional portfolios, you keep your exposures constant all the time and you allow volatility to happen to you. Right now, we're allowing everybody, the vast majority of passive money is allowing volatility to happen to them. And they're seeing it as like, oh my gosh, there's so much opportunity right now. I can make so much money right now because of Mark, whatever, March 24th. I can make so much money from here. Yeah, because your volatility is five times higher. Why don't you just lever your, you think you're good here when the markets are normal, lever it five times. Why don't you do that? Because there's a ton of opportunity when markets are normal for you to make money if you lever it five times. So the way to think about the bet sizing is, look, this is a trader's intuition. So let's go back to intuition. Have you guys met a trader that go big during market crashes? Everybody we talk to, there's one caveat, you keep your bets small. And the way we've always framed it is, as volatility expands, you reduce your exposure. Not de-risking the portfolio implies extraordinary bullishness. That's right. And then trying to bottom pick implies bullishness that I can't even fathom. It's you don't realize like, like you said, they are. there's old traders and there's bold traders, but there's no old bold traders. That's right. <laughs> I guess a Wall Street adage for you. Here we are with everybody taking big bold bets right now, whether they want to or not. I think we should concede something because there's a bit of an elephant in the room from the way that we frame the conversation. So there are going to be people who are just believers, faith in long-term equity returns. The economy is going to be fine. There is going to be a long-term equity risk premium and who are comfortable stepping in to equities when they're down 25, 30% because they have faith that they will eventually recover. The US economy is resilient. The global economy is resilient. Eventually, they'll grow into those earnings. Human ingenuity. Companies are not going to go away. Exactly. I think the problem is that we've studied global markets to such an extent that we don't share that optimism. At least I don't. I've looked enough at Japan. I've looked at other scenarios through history, Germany, China, Russia, Austria, other stock markets that have actually gone to zero. Every equity market in the last 10 years, except for the US? Every equity market has, yeah, really hasn't recovered from where they levels, even on a total return standpoint, the levels that they were at in 2007. So a lost decade for virtually everything except for virtually every equity market, except for US equities, especially priced in US dollars. So if you genuinely just are a deep believer, I mean, I don't share it. There are people that share, Warren Buffett obviously shares that belief, right? He's going to step in front of the steamroller because he thinks the steamroller is going to slow down, halt and back up. That's just not the way we're wired. And we're talking to other people that are wired like us. The Great Depression, what's a market that went down 90%? It's a market that went down 80% and then got cut in half again. So we know that this can happen. And that's, I think, the framework that we operate in. Obviously, we're not going to be speaking to everybody, but there's going to be a group of people that 
recognize those extreme risks that will resonate with. I think, Adam, you, you raise a really great point. This is contextual, right? If you're 25 years old, have a meager amount of savings, and you're continuing to save for a long period of time, the equity risk premium is pretty good. You should be praying for the 70s. You should be very happy about your ability to save as long as, as long as you can remain gainfully employed. So this comes back to, am I a stock or am I a bond personally, and how that might have implications to my portfolio? And also, if you're a young person, you should be really, really pissed off that they haven't allowed markets to reset so that you have an opportunity to get in on on this racket as well. Absolutely. They've preserved uh, higher valuations. They have done that by layering on debt that those companies and that society is going to have to pay for, that you will have to pay for through your taxation of your earnings in the future. I grant you, you're absolutely right. It's interesting. Warren Buffett's first three moves have been to issue bonds to get more cash, issues those bonds in other currencies other than the US dollar, and to sell airlines. And so a lot of people are saying, hey, let's buy the dip in front of Warren. And it's kind of like, well, Warren has a lot of cash on hand, first of all, and he's building more cash. And your idol hasn't even made a move and you've decided to make a move. That's notwithstanding the fact that most of the people with money that we are talking to and most of the allocations with money are those that are in decumulation, which cannot have a sustained period of negative returns and deliver the income. Like those are really difficult and challenging periods. Retirees and pensions, et cetera. Yeah. And what we know about a traditional 60-40 portfolio, equity markets, everybody knows this, everybody talks about it, is that left tail. That three standard, four standard deviation events happen much more often than one would expect. And so the idea of, so we talked about most portfolios, they keep their allocations constant and allow volatility to happen to them, hence allow three, four standard deviation to happen more often. And what we're advocating is making sure you get your bet size right by keeping our volatility as constant as possible and allowing our exposures to happen. Volatility is three times higher, we're gonna have three times lower the exposure. Volatility is significantly lower than whatever we target volatilities, right? Across the board from 8% volatility portfolio to 6% all the way to 25, you choose your target and we'll be able to do that. And the benefit of sizing consistently, making sure you're continuing to keep your bet size constant is that the left tail, the left fat tail is actually kind of gone away. It starts looking more like a right fat tail and a smaller left tail. And so less big adverse scenarios that will derail your retirement fully by being thoughtful about how much money you're putting to work, given the volatility of your portfolio. Yeah. Those tails wag the long-term average return dog is the challenge, right? If you talk about a group that's benefiting, how about someone who's got a defined benefit pension plan that's well-funded right now? And I mean, they're going to get some deals and they're retired. Oh my gosh, they're going to be in a nice deflationary environment. They're going to get a nice bump in their lifestyle. No volatility there for that. No volatility. The cruises just went on sale. They're going to get those for 25% (laughs) off. They're going to get a great deal of the next car they buy. Who wants to be in a cruise ship right now though? (laughs) Come next year, it might be a little different. I think we've covered everything we wanted to cover. Sadly, we don't have an awesome, compelling narrative with a specific direction that Resolve Brain Trust was able to put together for you. But if you want one, we can can brain map it for you. We'll create four. You can choose the one you like. I have one. You guys can give me a call and I'll tell you my personal. (laughs) There you go. So yeah, I mean, as always, the, the idea here is, look, when you don't know, you diversify and there's many ways to diversify. We walked through the idea of being balanced in your asset allocation positions, both on the asset classes that you're going to add to your portfolio, as well as how you're going to weight them. And then beyond there, try to figure out active ways of trying to predict a little bit, cheat a little bit from your balance. And when you're cheating a little bit, make sure that the things you're cheating with are also balanced and diversified. And finally, as we stand right now, what do we do going forward? Now that I have my balanced portfolio, how much money do I put to work? Well, you want to be more cautious right now as volatility continues to be incredibly you just heard my numbers, right? Up and down 3% every day still. So I think that's what we wanted you guys to take away. Again, if you want to get a very thorough refresher of everything we discussed, the 12 days of investment wisdom, walk through a lot of these concepts in depth. If you like any one of the episodes, you click through, you can download the white papers or the reports. And as always, we're here. Every one of us can answer your questions and get more in depth if you want to get more color. Anything else, gentlemen? No, thanks for everyone's 
perspectives. That's great. great day. Yeah, that was yeah. great, guys. Thanks. All. Thanks. All right, signing off. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode in the show notes at investresolve.com forward slash blog. You can also learn more about Resolve's approach to investing by going to our website and research blog at investresolve.com, where you will find over 200 articles that cover a wide array of important topics in the area of investing. We also encourage you to engage with the whole team on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve and hitting the follow button. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email, social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that our podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time.